This is Brian Kurtz, author of Overdeliver, Build a Business for a Lifetime, Playing the Long Game in Direct Response Marketing. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Brian Kurtz to talk about his book, Over Deliver, Build a Business for a Lifetime, Playing the Long Game in Direct Response Marketing, published by Hay House. Brian Kurtz has been a direct marketer for over 40 years and never met a medium he didn't like. And while he's had much success, he admits that trying to sell subscriptions and books on the back of ATM receipts and under yogurt lids was only a good idea at the time. For over 34 years at Boardroom Incorporated, he was responsible for mailing nearly 2 billion pieces of direct mail, and he did not lick every stamp. He was also responsible for the distribution of millions of other impressions and promotions in a wide variety of alternate media, both offline and online, using the latest direct marketing techniques while working with many legendary copywriters and consultants. Under Brian's marketing leadership during his tenure at Boardroom, revenues went from approximately $5 million to over $150 million. Today, he consults and works with direct response marketing companies and entrepreneurs directly and through his mastermind groups. Brian is also the co-author with Craig Simpson of The Advertising Solution, Influence Prospects, Multiply Sales, and Promote Your Brand. And interesting fact, he is a Little League baseball umpire. Play ball! Brian, congratulations on Over Deliver and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Doug. I told you before we hit record that I've been on probably over 200 podcasts. It may be even more than that. And some are better than others. And the ones that I seek out are the ones that have a host who dares to prepare. (laughs) And 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 that's a title of, of a book by Mark Shapiro, who was the um, president of the Cleveland Indians, a baseball team. Uh, that's American baseball for those of you who aren't <laughs> listening from America. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and, and the thing about, you know, anybody can have a podcast, just like anybody can have an email marketing business. Anybody can have a Facebook uh, page. Anybody, anybody can have a lot of things, but taking the responsibility for a podcast is a whole nother level. And you're one of those, you know, select few who do it that way. So I was really eager. I, you know, I don't solicit podcast hosts to be on their, to be on their shows, but I did with you because not only is it right up my alley, a marketing book podcast, that's perfect. But also I knew that you were uh, someone who actually reads the book, that you are, um, you're interested, not just interesting. And I just wanted to be on this podcast, so this is uh, as close to a dream come true today as anything else. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I'm honored to uh, to hear that. And 
you know, I don't know if I'm interesting, but I am interested in the authors. And to keep the sports analogy going, I think of myself as the sports writer who can't believe he gets to interview guys like you. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) And I just love doing it. It's a lot of fun for me. And I do want to thank listener David Bear for introducing us. He's a Marketing Book Podcast listener. And like all Marketing Book Podcast listeners, he's a you know, ridiculously good-looking guy, as you know. Yes, uh, I know. You said everybody who listens is really good-looking, yeah, and yeah. that's rare for a podcast, by the way. Well, and I can back it up, so you know, I'll, I'll fight you on it. I've got the science, right? So, and, anyway. and, and as far as like David Bear is typical of like the people that I love to hang around with because he's well, he's in your one of your mastermind. He's, groups, in, isn't he's he? in my mastermind, right? He is insatiably curious, which is one of the four pillars to becoming extraordinary, mm-hmm. uh, which I which are which I learned from my mentor, Marty Edelston. And, you know, I, I want to be, look, I, I, people say, Brian, are you retired? You must be retired. I said, well, my definition of retirement, which I got from Dan Sullivan, who runs Strategic Coach, which is the number one coaching organization for entrepreneurs in the world. And my definition of retirement is that I've retired from things I don't like to do. I've retired from things I don't do well. And that's really important. And I've retired from people that I don't like to hang around with very much. And on those three categories, I'm about 85% there. So I'm retired, but I'm working full-time. But I'm working full-time in the areas that jazz me and being with people who jazz me. And David Bear is typical of those people. So if if you, the rest of your audience is as good-looking as David Bear and as curious as David Bear... They're my people. Well, yeah, these are your people. I'm surprised you're not a listener because you're not an unattractive man yourself. I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be list, I'm gonna be a listener now that I've been a, I've been a, a guest for sure. Yeah. So the forward for the book was written by the legendary Jay Abraham, who I've had the honor of interviewing. I interviewed him about his book, The Sticking Point Solution, and. In the foreword, Jay wrote that he will personally write a check for the purchase price of this book to anyone who buys it. If the ideas failed to propel a meaningful improvement in not one, but at least three facets of your business. That's quite a guarantee. And I should add, Jay Abraham doesn't write a lot of forwards to books. No, no. Jay Jay has been a mentor of mine. You know, I found out, I mean, I I found this out some time ago, but I was just at a conference where Damon John was speaking from Shark Tank. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know who he is. And um, he 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 uh, he cites Jay Abraham as one of his mentors, and I'm like, wow! If I'm sharing a mentor with a shark, does that make me a shark? And the answer is no, because um, I'm 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 not the billionaire that Damon John is. But it it shows you the depth and breadth of Jay Abraham that uh, he can he can just sort of span so many different industries and and people. And I've I've known Jay since the early to mid 1980s. Oh, really? When when he was a guru in the uh, newsletter business, mm-hmm. and yeah. I, you know, in boardroom we published newsletters. I met him, and uh, just was always enamored with his his style, his grace, his his ability to. He he makes complex things more complex, and then he simplifies them. As hmm. opposed to just simplifying the complex, yeah. I think he, he, he's got a way of of thinking about issues. And my favorite Jay book is the one that is the one is is getting everything you can out of all you've got. Yes, I saw that is, mentioned in your book. Yeah, which is an amazing 
book. It's an amazing concept, which I use with every person I ever do a hot seat with, any person I've ever consulted with, any person I'm trying to help with their business. Because getting everything you can out of all you've got is basically you need to look within first before looking on the outside. Whatever you want to sell, whatever you want to market, whatever you want to position in the marketplace, you, you start with what you own, what you have, what is at your fingertips, and you want to get everything you can out of all you've got. Then you go to the outside and you find other places to find, I don't know, white label products or yeah, other and you talk copy. about that in the book where a lot of companies overlook what they already have. They have wonderful assets and it's sitting right under their nose. And as they say down south, if it had been a snake, it would have bit you. Right. Well, let's move on. I, when I was a uh, strapping young account executive at the uh, J. Walter Thompson ad agency in New York City in the 1980s, I took a direct marketing course because of what David Ogilvy always said about the importance of learning from direct marketers. So you can imagine how much I enjoyed reading your book. And to the listener, you know, I want to just say that Brian's career has, has been in direct marketing. I don't want listeners who don't think they are doing direct marketing to tune out just yet because nearly everything we're going to talk about has applications for for marketing at large. But let me read a couple of quotes from the beginning here. You write I accept that some young marketers might look at me like I'm some dinosaur from a bygone era, but while I playfully include T-Rex in my email address, that doesn't mean this book is going to be a stroll down memory lane. Instead, it's a way to share everything I've learned over a long career in direct marketing and to help the next generation of marketers understand that the principles of direct response are both eternal and essential. I would like this book to serve as the bridge between those principles and the -the state-of-the-art multi-channel marketing world of today. I believe it's my responsibility to pass on the fundamental lessons of direct response marketing to today's marketers and entrepreneurs who are hungry to learn them and apply them. And then further along, you write, maybe you're new to copywriting, marketing, and entrepreneurship and wanting to improve your skills. Maybe you're a seasoned marketer who is looking for a few new ideas, confident that you'll be able to have a huge impact with what you find. Either way, you've probably run into quite a few entrepreneurs who are uncomfortable with the idea that marketing is critical to every kind of business. You might have even met a few people who view marketing as a necessary evil. This could be even have been you. I often say that marketing isn't everything. It's the only thing. That might sound like I only care about selling and making money, but it's just the opposite. When marketers understand what they're doing at the deepest level and act with integrity and purpose, their work becomes a vehicle for bringing positive change into the lives of the people they serve. And further down, you write, this book is going to teach you how to sell aggressively without ever losing sight of the people you are selling to or compromising the respect and care they deserve. This book is about direct marketing, which is measurable marketing in any medium. While direct mail was the medium I cut my teeth on, and I'm proud of it, I cringe when marketers think that direct marketing is only about direct mail. This book is not about general advertising or what we call the madman model. Hey, hey, easy on the madman there. Kurtz. I profiled six of them in my first book. So you write advertising that builds brand awareness and maybe even evokes an emotional response, but has no way for the potential customer to actually respond to the ad for the marketer to track the response. So on page one, you write, I believe learning how to over deliver is the 
core of real success and uh, direct marketing, and dare I say, in all aspects of your life. So explain to us what you mean by over-delivering. Yeah, and I, I, when you were reading that, I didn't. I, I don't remember writing it. I mean, it made sense to me, but um, it sounded better than I thought. So um, <laughs> thank you. you. You didn't make any of that up when you were reading it, did you? <laughs> no, if, I, I wish I could. No. Um, so over-deliver is a, a, a fantastic – I mean – I had a couple of people say, "Oh, don't don't use that title. It's it's a it's a silly title because you know there are danger. I, I talk about this in the book, maybe in the intro as well. That the danger there are dangers in over delivery. Over delivery also has a corollary, which is when you over deliver and then you over deliver and then you over deliver and then one time you under deliver on the over delivery a little bit, then you have the what are you doing for me lately syndrome." So that it's like you set up expectations that end up being unf- unfulfillable, um, and that's the danger of overdelivery. But I combated that. I said, no, I like the th- I like the word. I want to own the word, and I even own it. You know, I have overdeliverbook.com. I've got you know, I I, I constantly call people overdeliverers, and 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 it's not a word. Um, but the thing about overdelivery is that. It's it's basically giving the customer more than they ever would have wanted. It's it's contributing first before you do anything else, and you contribute a hundred zero. I talk about that in the book as well. So you're contributing. Like I I think I say in the introduction that I talk about Adam Grant and his book Give and Take, mm-hmm. and the idea that I've never in my life said I'll meet you halfway. And I'm talking about my whole life, even when I was in high school. It's never about quid pro quo. I don't know where I got it from. I don't know. I think I was born with the non-quid pro quo gene or something. Mm-hmm. But but it, and then it transferred into my business life in such a big way where and that's why contribution was my possibility when I went to a self um, a self a, a personal development seminar, and I had to declare the word that described my possibility, and I was the possibility of contribution. And you know, skip to chapter ten of Overdeliver, where I talk about you know playing the long game, and the, I start that chapter with I say I hate the word networking, <laughs> right. uh, because and people see me as a networker, as a conduit, as a connector. And I said, no, networking implies glad-handing. It implies having the most Facebook friends. It implies all the things that I hate about business. What, what I prefer to say is that, as opposed to saying I'm a networker, I say I'm a contributor in order to connect. So it's the idea of contributing to connect. And how do you contribute? You contribute with over-delivery. You contribute 100 zero not 50-50, with no expectation of a return. And lo and behold, with this philosophy over 40 years, and a lot of people, I didn't invent anything, so I didn't invent this, believe me. A lot of people talk about it in many different ways, but I, being a direct marketer, I, I talk about it in terms of marketing. But lo and behold, with that philosophy, believe it or not, I deliver, I, I, I contribute 100 zero, and I get back way more than 100 Right. You talk about over-delivering. I was also about outworking everyone, having insatiable curiosity, surrounding yourself with people smarter than yourself, which is what I do on this podcast, and always thinking of how you can change the lives of others. I, I, I just want to mention quickly, those four things 
were the result of a eulogy that I wrote for my ultimate mentor, Marty Edelston. He died in 2013. Mm -hmm. And I was racking my brain at two in the morning at my kitchen table. What am I going to say about this guy? He's been my mentor for like 30 plus years. He was the founder of Boardroom. Of Boardroom, right. And I I, I was like, uh, you know, one of uh, his three kids were in the company. I was the non-family member that was like a kid. And he treated me like royalty. Um, I had an equity position in the company. I, you know, it was, it was an amazing ride. And I said, what, what was special about Marty? And they became the four pillars to becoming extraordinary because Marty always said he was an ordinary guy who did extraordinary things. He was from Newark, New Jersey. He was, you know, he was just a guy. But, he, but those are the four things. Outwork everybody, insatiable curiosity, um, no, I forgot. The Surrounding story. yourself with people. Surrounding yourself with yourself. others, and then saving lives. Yeah, and his public change lives, save lives. He even, mm-hmm. you know, he has stories about how he saved people's lives because of the material that we published in our newsletters and our books. So, God, what a great, what a great way to live a life, right? On those four, on those four pillars. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the uh, uh, principles of becoming a world-class marketer. And one of them is, I would think, related to your earlier book that you wrote with Craig. And that is, explain this concept that the new thing might not be so new. Yeah. So there's a bunch of ways I can go with this, but I'll just mention it. Over-deliver chapter two is the importance of original source. And my buddy, Perry Marshall, who you've interviewed for this podcast, um, I, I, Perry and I are, are, are totally, you know, in sync on this concept. Perry even goes a step further and says everybody should read a book that was written before Gutenberg in the printing press every day or at least once a week. Mm-hmm. So the idea that anybody has the gall to think they've invented anything, I just don't go there ever. Now, there are people that do invent things. I'm not saying they're, you know, um, you know, Thomas Edison definitely invented something, but he was building off previous knowledge that was from some eternal truth from before, and then he innovated on it, and then he became known as an inventor. So I don't want to be an inventor. I want to be an innovator on what's been invented previously and build on it. In addition, I get so much joy. I get the most joy. I, I just happened to me. I was at I was at an event uh, recently. My my book was in the in the uh, gifting room, and then I'm at a table eating lunch. And the guy comes up to me, asked me to sign the book, and he said, "You know, I'm reading your book, and I'm like, I you have this chapter four on list building and RFM. Uh huh. And RFM is a is a not it's not a it's not a rule of thumb. RFM." is basically how consumers behave in the marketplace. And RFM stands for recency, frequency, and monetary value. We can go into that in this podcast if you like. But the point I want to make is that he said, you know, I've heard of RFM. I never heard it explained as well as you did in Over Deliver. And thank you for that. Now, I didn't invent RFM. I didn't even innovate on – well, I, I did innovate on RFM because I talked about it both in terms of big lists and small lists and how to apply it. I wasn't the first to talk about that. But the fact that I was the messenger for RFM 
to this guy who's a, a he's a, he's a and I found out afterwards he's he's a he's a he's a um, proficient marketer and he does a lot of media buying in in uh, social media and so that I was the the doorway that I was the messenger that he now understands RFM because of the way I wrote about it in Over Deliver that meant as much to me as if I would have invented RFM. And that's why you have to get the joy out of your life as a teacher. First of all, as a lifelong learner. And also, as Jay Abraham has taught me, that if you are have done stuff, that if you are, if you've, he basically says, if you've done it, and Jay, Jay puts it bluntly, he says, if you've done it, you have a moral obligation to teach it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm at in my life. That, you know, and so I, I just, um, I am just a, a, a I am just a slave to this concept of of that not inventing stuff is is fantastic. Yeah, you know, so it's, many it's funny. Things. I can relate to that in a different way. Where I don't <clears throat> write the books that are on this show, as you probably may have figured out. But I thought you did when you were reading from my introduction. <laughs> but. I hear from listeners all around the world and they go, Hey, thanks for that interview. And I'm just thinking, I'm just, I'm just sharing, you know, all this smart stuff these other people do. But I just want to quote from page 30, right? One of the most important byproducts of learning about the foundational principles of any industry is that it keeps our egos in check. It's pretty easy to let yourself get carried away with your own genius if you think you're the first person to come up with some groundbreaking new idea. But if you know that you picked up all the salient points from concepts developed decades ago before spreadsheets and predictive data modeling, (laughs) you're going to be able to put it to use much more effectively because you will have so many examples to work from. So before we talk about RFM, because that was one of the main things I want to talk about, I wanted to talk about lists because you, and you mentioned you have a chapter on lists and I want to jump over to page 57 and you quoted uh, Dick Benson. You said he said uh, no mailer or marketer spends enough time on lists. And you write when you th- really think about it, the only thing that matters is who you're communicating with and how you're communicating with them. It's always about the list. I've said this so many times that it's becoming a running joke about me, both in the marketing world and in my own house. My daughter gives me a hard time about my solution to nearly every problem, being it's always about the list. <laughs> Explain. Yeah, it's like. Uh, it's funny. The best copywriters are list guys. Oh and yeah, gals. they're obsessed about the list, how it's developed, what the people on the list have done. Exactly, and yeah. and I'm th- I'm talking about the best copywriters of all time. I'm talking about Gene Schwartz. I'm talking about Gary Halbert. I'm talking about the best of the best. New because they can't just write. They're not writing in a vacuum. They're writing to a person, to an audience. I always say lists are people too, mm-hmm. and so. Um, I even went as far, I think, in chapter four, talking about the 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 old rule of thumb of the forty forty twenty rule, mm-hmm. and the forty forty twenty rule stated that in any direct marketing campaign, the success of any campaign depends forty percent on the list, forty percent on the offer, and twenty percent on the creative and the messaging. Now that doesn't mean that the creative is half as important as the offer. And the list, but I also made it. I, I changed it from forty forty twenty to forty one. This is this is advanced math here. Forty one thirty nine twenty, 
because I wanted everybody to know that the 41 needed to be the list. And the right. reason why is that if you've got you, if you've got, and, and let me reverse engineer this. If you have the best creative and the best offer, and it's going to an audience that has absolutely no interest in what you're selling or talking about, you'll make zero orders. The reverse is not true. If you have a perfect list and audience for your product or service, you can use you can have a, a, a slap shot offer and mediocre copy equivalent to a flashing red light and a and a and a and an arrow on a landing page and you'll still get some orders. And that's one of the things about online marketing that has kind of ruined it for a lot of us is that marketers who don't understand this concept know that they can make money by just getting an audience of like customers and just do a shitty job of creating an offer and and copy and messaging and they're going to make some money. Now, that's good news for the good marketers because then... But this then, also applies to even email marketing or people who aren't necessarily in direct response. Oh, absolutely. Oh, uh, even more so. Even more so. Because what, what it says is, is that once you have your list set and you have your audience and you have a decent offer, then the creative becomes the most important. I even did a blog post after Overdeliver was published because I was doing the 41-39-20 rule and people were saying, oh, the creative is the most important. I said, well, the creative is the least important at 20% until it's not. Because once the, 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 the list and the offer are dialed in, then the creative is the most important because what happens is, and I, and I proved it, in, on, on the marketing battlefield because I knew that if I had a product that I was selling, in my, in my case, it was a book or a newsletter, and the book or a newsletter had a control package, meaning that it had a promotion that was the winner on the battlefield. And when I tested against that, if I tested a new offer, I tested a price, I tweaked the headlines, I would get lifts in response, 10%, 20%, 30%. However, if I went to a new copywriter who wanted to do a new format with a completely new approach, maybe using the same price and offer, but come up with a completely new concept, that's where I, I got the, the 100% lifts in response and the 200% lifts in response because I already had the list and the offer dialed in and now I'm going to find the most creative genius I can find to work within that and share with him the list that I have and knowing that list deeply of the people that are on it, I could give them a profile of the people who have bought in the past, who I think will buy in the future. And so, so the creative is the least important until it's not, but going back to like the list is always the most important thing. And when I say list, I'm not, as, as, as you already kind of hinted at, it's not just a direct mail list. It can be an email list. Yeah, like, it's so not, let's it, say a marketer shows up and, or, or maybe an agency person comes along or whatever, and the, the, process, the client or the company says, oh, we have an email list. Well, what they should be saying is, okay, that's nice. Talk to me about how you develop that email list. Yes. <laughs> because the source. Yeah. The sor yeah. Sourcing a list. It could be I, people I that, that wanted to win a car at a trade show who have no interest in, you know, our product or service or I'll tell you that even if they're buying the same product, like let's say 
we had lists at boardroom. So I have the list, the, 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 the subscriber list to bottom line personal, which was our consumer newsletter, powerful list of executives, um, who spent $39 on a newsletter, how they got on the list was the most important thing because yes. we, we would use promotions to get people on the list from one of the, one of the packages we once used was a sweepstakes. One of the packages we used was a survey, a mock survey, where it was like a, a single page in an envelope where you fill out this one question survey that entered you into a subscription, which we then build them for and tried to get them to pay. We also had, and so some people came on the list, the subscriber list, that way, a sweepstakes or a, or a faux survey. Then we had other people who came on the list through a, a package that we called a bookalog, which was 64 pages of copy emphasizing all the things that we cover and the experts that are in bottom line personal. There was like, there wasn't just sizzle, it was like steak. We gave them actual content to sell the newsletter. What You would assume that the people that would have come on the list to subscribe based on that promotion would be much more embedded to the product and therefore, when other people wanted to use that list, they were people that wanted to be have the most um, voracious mail order junkies and junkies to the product that they could find. They didn't want like window shoppers, people who were looking at a sweepstakes or a, a survey. So it, it it's it's at the root. I say it's the root cause, but it's at the root of every list. Finding out how that name was assembled, and I found when I was I was buying lists, renting lists for a boardroom, that there were lists of the same book, same as we did. We had two. Sometimes we had two controls: one, you know, a survey, and one a bookalog. And I found that there were some other marketers that had names that, in the same quarter or the same six months, that basically were from two different arenas and I wanted to get a segmentation of the list that was based on the people that were bought that bought through a particular promotion versus the other promotion. Some could do it for me, some couldn't. No one was asking for that when mm-hmm. I was doing list mm-hmm. selection because they didn't understand. They thought they thought lists was a, a list was a homogeneous grouping <laughs> of of names and addresses or email addresses, or people on a Facebook group, whatever it is. That were etched in stone tablets that were brought down from the mountain. Yeah, it's like no list is homogeneous, (laughs) and that's what list segmentation is all about. Well, let's jump ahead to this other RFM, and you say it's important in direct marketing, and it it has to do with – you can explain it a little bit more here, but it goes goes way beyond direct marketing based on – on the number of times it's been mentioned in other marketing books that have been on the podcast. And I, I say that because uh, a lot of companies are spending a lot of money marketing to the wrong people, not to the profitable customers. Talk about RFM and why it is so central to not just direct marketing, but uh, selling to your own customers. Yeah, so I, I'd say I was in – I got to boardroom in 1981, the day Ronald Reagan was shot. Um, some people on this podcast listening, they go, who's Ronald Reagan? Yeah, I remember where um, I was that day, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I was my first day at boardroom. And, um, and I remember – He survived. 
for the younger listeners. Yes, he did survive. So I, I got, so I got an education very, very quickly uh, because I, I, uh, someone was saying that well, I, I was working in, list, in the list management arm of boardroom, meaning that I was representing the boardroom lists in the marketplace. Um, so people who wanted to rent the boardroom lists, I would get the list for them and tell them what's on the list, who, you know, who, who are the people, give them a profile, and it's all on a data card, which was the, the language of lists. And I saw something, at, I, I'm, I'm do, getting my orientation, I look at the top of the data card and it says hotline. So a hotline of a list are people who respond in the last 30 days, 60 days, maybe last 12 months, depending on the list. But usually a hotline was like last three month buyers or the last three month subscribers. And, 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 and they were higher priced. There was a, an extra charge for a hotline. And I'm thinking, I, had, I asked this question, I was, I was there for a week. And I said, this doesn't make sense to me. Why do you pay more for somebody who just came on the list? If they just came on the list, they just bought, which means they're not going to buy more because they're going to be out of money. That was like my logic, right? Because mm-hmm. I didn't know anything. And it's just the opposite, of course, that we all know in marketing, that the more someone, the more someone buys, the more someone buys. And so that's the R, the recency of RFM, that if someone who responds more recently is going to be more responsive to the next offer than someone who responds less recently. Right. Don't assume the pantry is now loaded and they don't need to come back in the market for a while. Right. Exactly. And if you give them the right offer with the right creative, that they are going to be they're going to have an affinity to your offer because of the offer that they just bought. And it just makes sense. But it didn't make sense to me when I was a week into the business. Right. Was- and there are, there are implications here also for like lead nurturing for those non-direct marketers. <laughs> if you can, yes. while they're still warm, they're still interested, they're engaged, they're finding it helpful. There's, there's reasons. I'll take it. A, I'll take it a step further. They're going to be, they're going to be stale very quickly. Mm-hmm. If you don't, engage with them, you know, not just selling to them, engage with them once they've already engaged with you. It's it's like you can't just sit by, idly by when someone takes a stand for your offer, for your for your mailing, for your survey, whatever. You've got to be responsive. So that's the R. Then frequency is the F. And now you can see that if someone bought something in the last three months and they also bought six months ago, and they also bought 12 months ago, that's going to be a better name on your list, a better person than the person who just bought three months ago. To use a dating term, they're kind of into you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we call those multi-buyers, right? (laughs) And multi-buyers also would get a premium on a list that you buy. So everybody knew it. It, you could tell by just the way lists were positioned in the marketplace. I didn't have to ask about that. That made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Someone who bought a bunch of times would be worth more. And and then you combine the R and the F. And now someone who bought more recently is the best name. And if they bought more frequently and they're a multi-buyer, that's even better. And now the M is monetary value. Monetary value is a tricky one because that's what they spend on the product. And what I quickly learned after a couple of years in the business, and I developed a, um, a two-day course when I was in the business for about four or five years, like List 101. It was like, it was like you know, 
where lists come from, and it's not from the stork, I think was the title. And I basically emphasize with with monetary that it's not always a, a positive because I wanted to use the because it usually is if if they're recent and they're frequent and then you can look at the total amount spent with the company that's going to be your best buyer the the most recent the most frequent and the one that spends the most. However, I gave I gave situations where monetary value was irrelevant. And I gave one I remember in the course where I said, if someone, if you're looking for architects and, and, and there's a magazine called Architect Weekly and they're the perfect audience for your T-square that you're selling, I'm, 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 I was making up the product and all that, but, and, and, and they're the perfect market for the T-square you're selling, it's irrelevant what they spend for the subscription to Architect Weekly. So using that as a, a barometer, you have to take the monetary in, in, you have to take it in, in conjunction with the affinity of the list to your product, to the industry that your list is focusing on, to your product is focusing on and the list. But RFM is the most powerful tool in modeling any audience. And I also will say, and I think this is an over-deliver, where I said, you know, modeling, you know, doing RFM on a hundred names is the same on doing RFM on a million names. On a million names, you need to use a, a big ass computer with a statistician with a PhD, you know, doing regression modeling and modeling it uh, so you can create all the tiers of the list that you should go to and all the list, all the tiers of the list that you shouldn't go to based on the past performance of the list. But on 100 names, just doing a spreadsheet on the people that have bought one product and when they bought it and how much they spent, how, how many people have bought two products, when they bought them and, and how much they spent, all the way down to the one who spent, um, who, who, who has 34 products from you when they bought each one and how much they spent. In fact, I think this is an over-deliver, not sure, but it's a story I've told in my blog about a woman who had 34 different, I use 34 for a reason, because she had 34 different products that she sold. And she did have a grid that she showed me on all the people. So if she's got 10,000 buyers, she's got 10,000 buyers who bought product one. Then there are 8,000 buyers who already also bought product two. She has, you know, 6,000 buyers who bought product three. And then on product 34, there was one buyer. In other words, people who, someone who bought all 34 of her products, there was one person. So I jokingly, not jokingly said to her, how many, t- have you had dinner with this one person? <laughs> right, that is in the book, yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. I said, have you, have you had dinner with this person who's bought all 34 of your products, assuming it's not a relative? Um, and she said, no. Have you gotten on a phone with them? And I, I, I took it up also. I said, the people who bought 26 products, there might be 100 of those. You should be on the phone with them on a regular basis yeah. because the people that are, as you said, you said it well. You said uh, they're into you. Yeah. So if they're into you, they find out you. What, yeah, they, they, why they're into you. What was what was the best product? What was the worst product they yes. bought? What was the most? What was the product that f- felt like it was out of sequence? Because there's a thing called contact strategy in direct marketing, where if you can find the order, the best order of products, like 
that the product you're selling sixth out of 34 should actually be eighth and the product you're selling 17th should be number two, that can, that could be a game changer for how you market your, your, your family of products to your family of lists. And so I I just, I, I tried to use the illustration of someone with a, with a 10,000 name list or a hundred name list should be using RFM at whatever level they can get to it. The key is though, you have to keep track of all the data. You have to keep track of all of your purchase data, all of the engagement data. And believe it or not, there are computers that can do that. I, yeah. I didn't. Well, yeah, now you know, especially, like, but you know, yeah, it's like we have the technology, right? Yeah. Don't let that scare you off from focusing on a hundred, but as Perry Marshall would say, it's fractal in nature. So, yes. you know, you look at a hundred, it's going to be, Probably pretty similar uh, to ten thousand, but if you got you got to start with those first one hundred. Also, um, you know, the, and again, almost every topic we're talking about, there have been entire books about. But the idea of companies should focus more on selling to their existing customers before <laughs> before they get they focus uh, entirely on getting. Yeah, new it's customers. like you know, we, we, but we, you we, don't want to sell to all your customers. You want to sell the most profitable ones. And right. again, Dr. Peter Fader from Penn, he's been on the show a couple times. He talks about how specifically how to zero in on focusing on the right the, the profitable customers. I want to jump ahead though to uh, offers. Going to page eighty three, you have an a quote from the legendary Claude Hopkins, author of My Life in Advertising and Scientific Advertising, who said, the right offer should be so attractive that only a lunatic would say no. And I want to quote from uh, page 83. You write, plenty of other books will give you lists of different offers you can make or the exact process to follow to develop good offers, the strategy of offers, how to think about creating them in order to make them as effective as possible, whether you're selling information physical products or experiences, your offer needs to appeal so deeply to your audience that it's irresistible to them. So what are some of the ways, what are some of the most important aspects that people need to know about an offer? Perhaps uh, talk about some of the biggest mistakes companies make when developing an offer. Yeah, I think there's a lot, so uh, we're not going to get into all of them. But I, I will say that the thing that comes to mind quickly is that you've got to really see, you know, yet that's why you have to understand lists and and the media that you're going to go after because you have to see what's been sold to them in the past and what types of offers seem to resonate. And it's not that you're going to steal other people's offers. And that's what I mean by strategy. You need to take a look at the different offer constructions. Do they use, you know, uh, uh, bonuses and premiums that are hard goods, or do they use digital premiums, or do they use um, certain topics? And whatever whatever industry you're in, you want to stay very narrow here to be able to go into. Basically, it's like a competitive analysis to see what people have responded to in the past. And then if you do have a house file, remember we talked about outside lists and house lists um, uh, just just a few minutes ago, that you want to, we want to go after your house list and find out like what, what jazzes them, survey them, engage with them. I wasn't kidding when I said, call up your best customers and find out what jazzes them. So when I talk about creating a strategy of offer, it's not throwing stuff up against the wall. And also, it's not the one with the most wins. You know, sometimes you can have offer overload where, 
you know, you basically you give them so much that they're overwhelmed and they say, I can't take it anymore. It reminds me of, if you know, the, remember the movie Amadeus, one of my favorite movies of all time. And when um, Mozart is like composing like on the spot for the, for the emperor and it's like this elaborate piece of music and the emperor, after he's done, he says, Mozart says, so what do you think? Like, you know, he knows he's a genius. And the emperor says, hmm, too many notes. Well, Herr Mozart, a good effort, an excellent effort. You have shown us something quite new tonight. It is new. It is, isn't it, sire? Yes, indeed. So, then you liked it. You, you really liked it, sire. Well, of course I did. It's very good. Uh, of course, now and then, just, just, just now and then, it, it, it seemed a touch... Um... What do you mean, sire? Well, I mean, uh, occasionally it seems to have, um, oh, how should one say, um, how shall one say, director? Too many notes, your majesty. Exactly. Very well put. Too many notes. And I, I didn't get the whole, I have the whole dialogue printed up in one of my blogs, but it's like, you don't need too many notes, but you need the right notes. Um, I know that sounds kind of broad and sounds kind of cliched, but that's what makes good offers. And to make it irresistible, you have to be, you have to know what the pain points are of your audience. You have to know also, like Gene Schwartz wrote a book called Breakthrough Advertising, which I have the exclusive rights to. Gene was my mentor and my friend. And he talks about states of awareness and levels of sophistication of your audience. You need to know before you start creating a product or an offer that you have to understand your audience. Again, it goes back to the list. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand are, what, what's the level of awareness that they have with you. Are they unaware of you? Do they know you? Are they problem? Gene has a whole thing in Breakthrough Advertising. And I've done a Breakthrough Advertising boot camp where we go deep on each one of these levels of awareness. Mm -hmm. But are they product aware? Are they problem aware? Are they solution aware? Because whatever they're aware of, you need to key into it and that's going to create the offer. As far as um, there's how sophisticated are they? Are they beginners? Then you have to treat them a whole different way with different kinds of bonuses and different types of offers. With a, with a beginner, you have to understand maybe that they don't have as much money. So then your price needs to work into their level of sophistication and their level of awareness. So there are so many aspects, but I think that let it be known that you if you walk through Actually, I think, I think one of the best things someone can do if they're trying to create an offer is to read Breakthrough Advertising first. It's an advanced book on copywriting, on marketing, but it's really about human behavior. And human behavior is marketing. Right. And so right. understanding and That was one human of the principles it's at the beginning of your book. You talk about you know, marketing is, all, is, is about psychology. So, it is. But wait a minute, Brian, let me just ask. What you're saying is, to have a great offer, you have to understand your customer and their pain points. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Was no one going to tell me that? Now, wait a minute. Now, you're saying you could just pick up the phone and talk to a customer and get some ideas? Yeah. I mean, Why does I, nobody you know, do that? You know why? I, I think they don't think their smartphone uh, is can be used as a phone, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I know. My kids are not aware that you can actually talk to mom and dad. Yeah, uh, exactly. Through that device. They, they just think it's a tech. And, and I've got stuff in, in Over Deliver where I talk about 
different types of surveying of your customer. I talk about the questionnaire test, the concept the, test that we the did. Q, the Q, the Q test, Q right? Test. Yeah. And and that for new product development, but that's creating an offer, right? If you knew, if you what what you know, people think that they can just oh, I'm going to do this product next without any research, without any and especially if you already have buyers. Even if you don't have buyers, if you have people who've inquired about what you're going to sell. I mean, to Talk not... To them. Yeah, do some research, goddammit. Yeah. yeah, you know, it reminds me of the movie Animal House where the guys pull up to the uh, the nightclub and Otis Day and the Knights were performing and they're all running in and they say, Otis, wait till Otis sees us. He loved us. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they walk in and everybody's looking at them. Yeah, like, no, yeah. no, no, they didn't. They didn't like... No, like no, no. All. That's right. Well, let's jump to uh, creative and copywriting. You write that it's a tragedy that so many marketers outsource their creative to amateurs when it's so vitally important. I, you know, explain because I think you may be upsetting some folks. Well, I, I probably now the book. The book was written in you know before AI and ChatGPT came about. That's only been a year old, so. But it's still the same to me. Because but I think that that makes for that that uh, chat makes my point even more. I, even yes, more, even yeah. more so. The, the 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 value of copywriting just went up <laughs> it because did. there's so much because, more crap out there. Right, because the thing is, uh, one of my one of my friends, Kevin Rogers, who's a copywriter coach, he said that there, you know, the 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 state of the copywriter in 2024, you, you're either a bot or you're the best. <laughs> Exactly, and the middle ground are just going to be are, are just going to be glorified bots. Look, you can again. Remember, what I said before, if your list and offer are set up correctly, forty forty twenty, use, yeah, you, and you and you can use mediocre creative. Mm-hmm. You'll still make some sales using every something that's a hundred percent Chat GPT generated. However, now if you can, if you can. Now the best copywriters are using Chat ChatGPT Chat is incredibly useful. It's a an amazing tool, but it's not the be all end all in terms of copywriting. Yeah, so, spell check on Microsoft Word is nice too, but it doesn't actually write the document for you. No, and it's it's also pulling from you know the experience that has come before. Right. What it what it's and learned. The co- Right, so the copywriter, the best copywriters are always forward looking and they they're staying a step ahead of what's happening today and looking at where the puck's going to be, not where the puck is. So that's a Wayne Gretzky quote. Now, outsourcing to amateurs does sound a little severe, but I wanted to get people's attention when I said that in that chapter just so that they understand that copywriters are not just born. You know, they are just like you know, just like as Malcolm Gladwell says in yeah. Outliers, it's 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 um, you know, it's it's what is it? Ten thousand um, hours. Ten thousand hours to mastery. Yeah, and maybe and people argue that too. They say, oh, ten thousand—that's bullshit. But the well, idea you know is good. Yeah, it, the you know, it, if it's not ten thousand, it's not fifteen minutes either, and it's not a year. It you know of learning copy and learning marketing and learning everything that you can do. In fact, I think in in over deliver in that chapter, I talk about the um, on the creative. I talk about the uh, seven characteristics that every world class copywriter I ever work with. Yeah, and I'm coming from a pretty good place because I've been in the business for over forty years. Not saying I should get a medal for that, but 
because I've been in the business for 40 years, I've been paying attention every year, and I've worked with only the best copywriters who've been alive during my 40 years in the business, I was able to figure out, I, I basically one day I said, you know what? I got to make, I made a list of all the best copywriters I work with, Gary Bensavenga, Gene Schwartz, Jim Rutz, and then some more, you know, more, more uh, recent ones, you know, Paris Lampropolis, David Deutsch, and then going back and forth, Clayton Makepeace. And what I did was I said, what did they all have in common? And that's when I came up with the seven characteristics that the seven characteristics of world-class copywriters. And it's every, every one of every one of them had had all seven in spades. Yeah. And then when I finished the list, I realized, well, it wasn't so unique because it's the same characteristics for world-class marketers too. Yeah, and those are hunger, curiosity, smarts, and uh, that has to do with surrounding themselves with right uh, having having good um, uh, um, uh, uh, people to bounce ideas off of. Yeah, you're right. The, the way they surround themselves with people who know what they don't, which is right. uh, so meaningful to me. Passion, understanding direct marketing principles, some of which are 100 years old. Well, some of them more. are. It's the, it's the 40, 40, 41, 39, yeah. 20 rule. RFM and lifetime value are three. Humility. I loved it. They'll tell you about their winners, but even more about their losers because they're learning. And the last one is how they share their success, their generosity. Let me jump to another, uh, just there's so many big concepts here I wanted to talk about in our remaining time. You write that many online businesses and plenty of offline businesses too default to marketing on one channel, whether out of convenience or because they know one channel above all others. And you write that this might be the most dangerous thing you can do in marketing, regardless of why you are doing it. Explain. So that chapter opens, the multi-channel marketing opens with a quote from Bill Burnback, which is never adapt your technique to the idea, adapt your idea to the technique. You know, so there are a lot of online marketers that are defining themselves by a channel. So they'll say, I'm a Facebook marketer, I'm an Instagram marketer, I'm a TikTok marketer. And you know what? It's dangerous from, from a number of levels. First yeah, of all, you wrote that you never called yourself a direct mail marketer in the 1980s. And people shouldn't call themselves internet marketers today. No, it's like you're a marketer with a specialty in a particular channel, but be a direct marketer open to all channels. Because for one thing, as as What's obvious is that, and you've heard, I've heard, probably people who are listening have heard horror stories about a a marketer who is 100% of their business is on Facebook. Or or Google Plus. Right. And then they shut them, and and they shut them down. Yeah. And then they're out of business. I knew a, I knew a marketer who was selling a $30 million business selling supplements on Amazon, nutritional supplements. And one day, Mr. Amazon, not Jeff Bezos, said, we don't like your copy anymore. It's not compliant enough. You're off Amazon. Business gone. Business gone. Now, that's an extreme measure Mm -hmm. to make my point. That doesn't happen every day. But the idea of of being like you're everywhere without being everywhere is the most important thing you can do as a marketer. In fact, Perry Marshall has a concept that I, is so genius. And as I said, Perry's a genius, so it's not surprising. He has a, he has a concept called Maze 2.0. And what Maze 2.0 says is that, so you make a, an act, two axes, a horizontal axis and a vertical axis. 
And at the top of the vertical axis, at the top it says online, at the bottom it says offline. On the horizontal axis, on one end it says live, and on the other end it says recorded. Now, now you have four boxes, right? You have live, recorded, online, offline with four boxes. You can put any medium and classify it in one of those four boxes. So a book, a hardcover book is not live, it's recorded, and it's offline. A, a live webinar is live and online. A recorded webinar, a replay, is recorded and online. You get the idea, right? Mm-hmm. So now you plot. So, so you the the key is that if you're a marketer and you're thinking about what media, don't just guess. Like I'm going to go on Facebook because it's big. Not a good reason. Right, right. Or I'm yeah. Or uh, I'm only going to do TV advertising. You know, there was a line uh, that you have in here from your financial planner who once said, "While you may not make a killing with my investment philosophy." You will never get killed. Right. It just reminded me of diversification when you're investing. Exactly. And so so if you And it so doesn't need te- to be just online, folks. <laughs> no. Look, offline I, I wrote this in my blog only a couple of weeks ago. It's like offline marketing is the best and of all time. It's not an or <laughs> it's the best and of all time today because people aren't doing it. So just because, you know, by, by going left when people are going right or right when people are going left is a reason to at least look at it as a possibility for diversification. Right. And I'm, Brian not saying, Kirsten, I'm not saying do it. Let me ask you a question. What is the least crowded inbox you can send to today? It's the one at the end of your driveway <laughs> or in the lobby of your building. If and you're not the you're only one that on. says that. Joe Polizzi. Founder of the Content Marketing Institute says there's never been a better time for direct yes. mail. If but it just because sense. just because the mailbox is less crowded is not a reason to throw junk in it either. Right, so right. That's a different discussion yes, for a yes. different day. Right, right. But but just let me finish the so the idea is like you plot like all the potential markets that you want to go to. So you put you you, you you so you have a product or a service. And you could market with a book. You could market with a webinar. You could market on Facebook. You could, and you plot them on the the grid that we just described that Perry invented, basically, or innovated. And then, basically, you don't have to be everywhere. You just have to pick maybe – Perry says pick one in each quadrant. Yeah. I say maybe two in each quadrant if it's not – if you have a budget for it. And that will give you an opportunity to be diversified and also give you an opportunity to make it look like you're everywhere where you need to be because you've researched those media media outlets and say yeah facebook is not good for me because i can't segment enough for my for my product however direct mail might be good for me because there are a lot of lists that i can do and maybe not a, spend too much on a direct mail piece and but i can find a great list or a great list for that so you need to reason it out and of course everybody has a budget you can't that's why you can't be everywhere also but it's it's a basically a uh, a way to look at not to force the multi-channel marketing, but to make sure that the multi-channel marketing makes sense for your product, your service, and the the budget that you need to work under. Right. I'll try and uh, that's Perry Marshall's maze. I'll try and include a graphic of that on this episode's website page. It, yeah, it's uh, called Maze 2.0. Yeah, I'm looking I, I it up know. right now. I'll, I'll include that on there. That's a great a great idea. And I remember, you know, we've had a lot of clients over in the past where we would say, look. 
particularly if it was a they were trying to get them to a sale where they needed a human to help them, maybe B two B, and we would say, look, the purpose of all this online stuff is to get offline. <laughs> Yes. And, and that and no one ever told them that. And we were like, yeah, we're trying to get people to pick up the phone and call you or be receptive to your call. Well, in, in Over Deliver, I have a section called O to O to O. It was yeah, from I want some... to talk about that. You're obviously uh, working for the NSA because you can read my script here. But before we get to that, talk about this lifetime value, LTV, and Ugh. why the the first purchase, it's, it's most often just the, the tip of the iceberg, but too many – Companies think they have to they have to zero it out with the very first purchase. You know, I can remember talking to a manufacturer in uh, Chicago years ago, and it was a CFO who was taken over for the CEO for a while. And I was explaining to them the idea of, well, how, how long do you keep your customers, and how much do you make on each one? And he knew the answer to that. I said, well, can you multiply one by the other? And he didn't. Really, no one had ever explained to him the idea of. Oh, you mean we're making $4 million on every new customer? Yeah, you can actually overinvest a little bit in the very first yes. one. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it seems to be overlooked a lot. It, it is. Um, I mean, I, I have a lot of blog posts on this topic in different angles. One is, you know, go, uh, sell your first product with the second one in mind. Just so that you have a philosophy that says, I'm going to sell more to this people to these people and it's not going to be a one-hit wonder. Yeah. Now, you don't have to develop the second product necessarily, soup to nuts, but you need to start thinking about what's the suite of products or services that you want to be able to sell and also maybe do it on an ascending price basis so that you know you sell them the low-ticket product first. You're not going to break even on that. You're going to lose money on the first order, but on the second order that you're already thinking about and what you're going to charge for it, you might make your money back after the second order, and that's okay as long as you have the cash flow to do that. And that's what lifetime value is, basically. It's A lifetime could be a year. A lifetime could be two years. A lifetime could be 10 years. A lifetime could be 80 years. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's kind of like a it's 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 lifetime is in the eye of the, the, the in the eye of the beholder but i always say at chapter 10 of over deliver i started with the quote life is long which is a take on life is short life is long cuz it's the only one you got so every every one of your customers then needs to be looked at with a long life and therefore what's going to be the customer journey for them with you that's going to be most meaningful for them and for you. Yeah, and the and thing so, I love about thinking about lifetime value is it makes you it, – it, it's, it's almost like it's tricking companies into thinking, oh, are there things we could be doing to keep these customers rather than this mentality of one and done? I don't care if I have a leaky bucket, but it also gets people thinking about the customer journey. Yes, it's, it's sort of like Stu McLaren, who's like the, one of the best, if not the best, uh, expert on – um, memberships in in the in the marketing world, hmm. he talks about the um, the the success path of his customers, and I love that term, right? Because what are we in the business for? We're not in the business just to sell stuff. We're not. We're in the business to get results for our customers and the people that we work with. And so the idea of creating a success path, which is a customer journey, is is so much more meaningful to me. And it ties directly into lifetime value. It, de mm -hmm. it, it derives, I think it derives itself from lifetime value. 
And I always say, and again, maybe because I'm old now, that I always believe that getting rich slowly was better than getting rich quick. Oh, yes. Um, that was a great quote in the book about uh, so many of these marketing books or people in our world, they think of them as, as get rich quick people. Yes. But you argue the opposite. Yeah, it. but it's but you know, I also I also understand that, you know, marketers, young marketers especially, they're impatient. They want to make money quickly. Some of them have to make money quickly because yeah, they're their gonna management's impatient. Their investors well, are maybe if, if they're if they're a new entrepreneur, maybe they're the you know, they're their landlords impatient because they can't pay the rent. Yeah. So I mean you know, people you got you gotta make money. So yeah. but so I say it like in a grandfatherly sort of way, even though I'm not a grandpa yet. Um, but I do think that, you know, and I don't like to say it with my finger pointing to the young whippersnappers either, because I don't, that's not my game, but my game is, you know, every, look, speed, speed is a great commodity, right? But speed, speed at the expense of, of quality and integrity and, um, uh, creating great products, keeping a customer as opposed to just getting one. I mean, look. Nobody, nobody, ref, nobody refunds a relationship. They only refund transactions. So, um, and I have a quote in the book that says, you know, everything in business and in life is not a revenue event, but everything is a relationship event. And so, you know, creating relationships in the short term may not make you as much money, but over the long term, over a lifetime, it will make you more than you'll ever dream of. Right. And I think there's more length to those relationships than a lot of companies uh, uh, realize. Absolutely. So let me jump to something else that you write about. I really appreciate how generous you're being with your time. This is not a uh, a short book, and you've packed so much in here that I can only imagine this is frustrating for you <laughs> because we only talk about a few things. But you write that you speak to marketers all the time who have never thought about attribution. At all. So right. explain what that is and why that's such a mistake for any marketer. And I know what some people are saying. Well, back to your uh, pejorative comment about madmen, which, you know, don't think I didn't notice that because mm-hmm. I, I had been a madman. But people say, oh, we can't, attri- uh, we can't attribute, you know, where the business is coming from. But if no one's doing it at all, that's a problem as well. Yeah. So it's funny that when, it, when you said, when you asked the question, for some reason, I, attribution had a double meaning because there's because I talk a lot about my mentors and attributing things to them like just like I've done on this podcast I've attributed you know um Maze 2.0 to Perry and I've attributed um you know getting everything you can out of all you got to Jay that's not the attribution we're talking that you're asking about but it's an important one because a lot of people today don't do it and they'd rather take credit for something that was someone else's, even if it was someone else's who got it from someone else. But I think there's too much of that. The attribution you're talking about is basically where did the order come from? Where, you know, what source? And of course, you know, I was on a, I was on, on a stage at an event that I created in 2014, the Titans of Direct Response. And the, the speaker was Greg Ranker from Guthy Ranker. Oh, yeah. And and they were the they probably I don't know if they still are the top infomercial producers in the world at the time they were uh, proactive is one of their big brands. Um, yeah, I went down a real rabbit hole uh, when I was reading your book, uh, studying up on on them because I'd heard of them and I just didn't realize. I mean, they got started in the eighties, like with Tony Robbins, I think. Yes, 
Yes, with uh, one of Tony Robbins's programs. Yeah, uh, just and, amazing. And, yeah, and I, I do have a little bit of that history. They, they have I a think a billion dollar business. It was one point eight billion. Yeah. When, in two thousand fourteen at the event, and Greg Renker's on stage, and he basically said at in no and, and I have the whole actually I think that entire presentation is on the overdeliverbook.com page, um, free when you buy the book, uh, among other five others from that event. But the whole presentation, it seemed, was about how do you attribute an order for the, skin, the acne skin cream that they're selling when there are... So you run an infomercial, and during the show, you can judge the response because there's, an, there's a dedicated 800 number, and people are calling in right after the show or, you know, and, and those orders are pretty much you can get attribution towards. But what about like six weeks later, you're getting a whole lot of orders. There's no show running on the particular 800 number. And you know that there are, there's direct mail out there that has an 800, a, a, a broad 800 number. You know that there are kiosks in malls where people are buying the product you know that um, there are people who are listening to radio ads. Um, there are people online ordering um, who might have just come over the transom. How do you attribute every order to a, a source? Now, the Mad Men didn't deal with that. And you know what? Maybe their business was simpler and, and maybe they weren't as stressed about it. And God bless them. They, they paved the way for direct marketing, though. And so once it's direct measurable marketing, you want to measure it some way. And I know Greg got into a formula where you want to attribute it somewhere. Maybe you do pieces of attribution. You know, if it's an 800 number that was on an infomercial a week ago, but it's not running currently, you give it to the infomercial, but maybe you attribute it to the fact that the infomercial was rerunning in some kiosks in malls and you can maybe get a piece of it to the kiosk. So, because eventually you got to decide whether you want to keep the kiosks, and are they are they paying for themselves? Eventually, you have to decide whether the infomercials are paying for themselves. So that's the only reason why attribution is so important. Because you know you want to. Dan Kennedy says the, the 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 marketer that spends the most on media wins. Now you have to buy it, the media and make sure it's working to win. You can't just buy it indiscriminately, and so. You need to make sure that the media you're buying is is doing its you know its 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 duty uh, to your bottom line, and it may not be a hundred percent of the attribution, but you got to give it some of it. So attribution is a very complex issue, but one that you need to be aware of if you're going to be in any kind of marketing space, because just putting it all you know because you're mostly on Facebook and you want to attribute every order to Facebook, that's not a reason to attribute every order to Facebook. Right. And you uh, you know, you know, talk about this is uh, – a lot of it's far from a precise science. However, it's the best you can do. <laughs> and some right. data here is better than none. Now, I want to jump to the thing that I thought – if I had to – don't tell the rest of the concepts in the book I said this, but I thought this was the most interesting, and that is the uh, – O to O to O. And I want to quote from page 163. You write, despite the challenges around attribution and calculating an accurate long-term value, LTV, for every new customer, the opportunities available to us in combining 
online and offline media are too rich to ignore. Online to offline to online, or offline to online to offline, or any combination that fits for your audience is a concept that I believe not enough people are talking about. Explain. So it's it's basically uh, it's basically saying that you want to meet your customer where they want to be met, not where you want to meet them. I mean, it's as simple as that, really. But I got the impression it actually works better. Yeah, that happens, right? Um, and, and yeah, it's funny how that happens. But the thing is, it's like, you know, to be, and that's why multi-channel marketing, that's why this is in the chapter on multi-channel right. marketing, because it's, 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 it's critical because, you know, the idea of wherever you start the life cycle of a customer is not where it might end. And you know what? I've got, I've got people, for instance, in my mastermind who I sell through mostly email. They join through email. Then they get bonuses that are digital and they're sent to them through links in email. But then once a month, they get a USB that's a physical package sent through the postal service. And now the content is sitting on their shelf in addition to in their computer. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a value add to them. That is, I think it contributes to my renewals. I can't attribute about attribution. I can't say that if I didn't have the physical product that complemented the digital product that I would have the same, I'd have the, that I have um, a fewer renewals, but I'm going to say that I would, I would, I wouldn't because it's a, a, a huge benefit because there are, and I, and I do it for everybody. And some people say, I don't need the USB once a month. So I don't send it to those people. But I think that giving people a choice for how they want to digest their content and their and your product is just all about customer preference and yeah. and it's you know and what why do why do at the Ritz Carlton why do they give you a survey to say I, I'd rather have feather pillows than than down pillows I'd rather have coffee than tea in the morning so that then they put it on your record and then they can next time they don't have to ask you anymore and they give it to you the way you want it and it, it, for the customer, it's a barrier to switch. Like, why would I go to another hotel right. that I have to start over with? A barrier to switch, and it actually helps them run their uh, their business more efficiently. And Brian Kurtz, just so you know, I'm going to be mailing you a handwritten thank you note after this interview, as I do for all my guests. And I think it's working because last year, you know, let's see, 2023, more than half of my Guests were returning guests, so I'm clearly not scaring them off. So you see, no, you would I'm, never scare anybody. I'm doing the offline, I'm doing the online. Let me just follow up. And you're right, many marketers who work online have told me that their customers originating in a variety of offline media have a higher LTV than those who first engaged with them online. And the marketers who have figured out that starting online doesn't mean they have to be exclusively online, have had some incredible results by going offline. Uh, before we wrap up, let me just say, you've got a chapter on customer service and fulfillment, and you remind readers, I hope this isn't a new information for some, for some listeners, that it's, it's much easier to keep a customer than to get a new one. And I should yes. add, it's also less expensive in almost every case to keep yeah, a customer. That, that's, the, uh, that's the house <laughs> list, outside list. It's yeah, like- than to acquire a new one. 
but I want to jump ahead to something that I thought was quite interesting, and I don't recall seeing this, but it makes all the sense in the world. Why do you argue that it should be mandatory for marketing personnel to sit in on customer service calls on a regular basis? Well, we talked about it before. You know, it's like listening. You, uh, lists are people too. Customers are people too. They're human beings. They have likes. They have dislikes. Some people have more more dislikes than likes, but you want to hear them too. And I, I think not only the marketers, but the copywriters, the CEO of the company yes. should always be in tune. Um, they should get they should get a dashboard report on all of the customer complaints, all of the all of the things that go on in their in their phone banks in the company. But listening in and hearing human beings talk about your product or service is one of the most um, exhilarating and it can be frustrating, but you learn so much. And I think that also the other piece that I I have all these listed different ways to know what's going on in your customer base, but the idea of hiring a secret shopper, you know, someone who, who is like skilled in marketing basically buying all and you hire them yes you have a great story your- in here about a secret shopper who really went the distance and and basically stress tested uh the business exactly you buy stuff you return stuff you call and complain nobody in the company knows that you're being paid by the ceo and then they give you a report afterwards where are the holes in the bucket basically and what you'll learn from doing a secret shopper um, uh, project is more better than doing even better than a survey. It's even because it's real life on time, you know, on, 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 on the battlefield. Yes. And let me add to that on page 178, you have this and I want to quote it because off to the side in the, in the margin, I wrote, this is great. <laughs> Your book got me really fired up there, Mr. Kurtz. So thank you. As I mentioned earlier, many insightful entrepreneurs hire secret shoppers, people on the payroll outside the company to go through every aspect of their sales and marketing operation to find out where there might be a broken link or a hole in the operation that no one would ever see without this anonymous monitored buying. One brilliant entrepreneur had his secret shopper answer one question and one question only at every step of the process as they experienced the organization's sales funnel. How does that make me feel? I'm going to repeat that. How does that make me feel? This secret shopper bought everything, returned a lot, complained a lot, got on the phone with customer service people, sent emails, basically everything they could possibly do to stress the system as much as possible. Whenever the answer to the how did they feel question was anything short of thrilled or at the very least satisfied, there were tweaks to be made in the system. Ugh. Such great, such great advice. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, and it's it's fair, it's fairly it's easy to do. So. Yeah, it doesn't cost a lot, folks. No. Um, hey, no. Me, one last thing I want to ask you about the book. From chapter nine, you write about this thing called congruent marketing, and on page two hundred, you write that when you focus on congruence or congruence, the number that you calculate in lifetime value per customer tends to increase exponentially. Explain what you mean by congruent marketing. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think the story is in here, but there was a story I have about a guy who had a, um, an email newsletter that was like a, 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 
a self-improvement kind of thing. It was like a daily meditation, very, very spiritual. So this wasn't in the book? I don't think so. Okay, listeners. So what you're about to hear is a marketing book podcast extra, Mr. Kurt. <laughs> a bonus. You know what? I, it sounds to me like this guest is trying to over-deliver. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying my best. So he's got a, he's got this like personal improvement uh, email that goes out daily, like a daily thought of the day and what you can do to improve yourself, blah, 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 blah. But he needed to make some money, right? So he started offering um, affiliate offers to his audience. And, you know, which is fine. It's a great way to market. Just another channel of marketing, affiliate marketing. So... He was offering things that made sense. They were congruent. He offered like uh, a yoga teacher talking about yoga poses. He offered a course on meditation He from, from a third party now, not from him. Sure. He offered something else. And then he was making a little money. And, and, and then one day he decided to offer a course on how to flip houses, a real estate investing thing, how to flip houses. Now, he had a reason for it. He reasoned it out and said, look, most of my spiritual people, I know for a fact, because he knew his audience, not well enough by offering a real estate investment course, but he knew them well enough to know that they, were not, they didn't have a lot of money. And he knew they needed to make money on the side. So he figured, all right, I'll give them an opportunity with this real estate investment course and take them on as affiliate. And I think the numbers were astounding. Like maybe if he had, you know, um, I think I think he had a, like a third of his list unsubscribed based on that one email selling the real estate investing course to his list. I use that as an example because it's it, it really defines how you can be not be con- congruent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a, it's an extreme case, and you might not realize it. So so he didn't he didn't check it he didn't check his premise with other people. He just went with his gut, which was a good gut. He, he, you know, knew his audience. He knew that they, you know, needed money. But, you know, he crossed the line. And sometimes you cross the line and it's too late once you cross it. Right. So It reminds one me of the, of the TV commercial that was on Saturday Night Live uh, years ago, uh, which I played in a recent episode, where it's a, a, a commercial for a floor wax and a dessert topping. Yes, yes. Dan Aykroyd. Dan yes. Aykroyd. Shimmer. Yes. It's a dessert yes. topping and a floor wax, right? Right, right, right. So you know that's that's one of the. So I think that that's why you need feedback loops in yeah, your business. That yeah. was actually, and that was what I meant when I said um, in the seven characteristics that make you a good copywriter, make you a good marketer. Number three, I think, in the book says smarts. But what smarts means is that you need to have feedback loops yes. of people not only smarter than you, but people who know your market as well as you do, mm-hmm. but have basically a, um, a third-party view of it so that you – because you're, you're immersed in your business. You don't see your business. Right, and that also requires uh, one of the others, which is humility. Exactly. Some, so one of those people that you're trusting in a feedback loop says, man, if you do this real estate investment offer, you're going to get killed. You got to believe them if you're going to use them as a feedback loop. Is that the moose on the table? That, that would be a moose on the table, yeah. And the moose on the table, and then we'll wrap up. So moose on the table is a great concept, which is it's, 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 it's better than an elephant in the room because a moose on the table is like the image that I have is like every, there's a big dead moose carcass 
on the board on the ta- on the meeting room table. And right? Those moose are like, big. They're big with the le- and the legs are up in the air, right? <laughs> like like the uh, the horse and animal house, right? Right. Um, so so uh, the moose and 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 this one has like its guts spilling out over the table. You know, all the organs are all over the. I want I want to create a really nice image here, <laughs> and basically everybody's around the boardroom table or the or the conference room table, and they're talking about everything but the moose, right? And I, I do the moose on the table because I think that, you know, you need to get out of your own head when you're talking about the business. You don't, it, it's also, you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room is mm-hmm. part of this. If, um, you know, if you're just surrounded by yes men and, and, and sycophants, you're not going to be able to run a successful business long term. So, the you know you want to make sure that if there's a moose on the table you're talking about it there you go absolutely well brian if readers took only one thing away from the book what would you hope it would be well you know a lot of the stuff we talked about could be the one um like ltv 41 well, it is a very 20. unfair question but it, it is. But, I don't make the um, rules. I just enforce them here on the marketing yeah. podcast. <laughs> You're fun. You are funny. You, you said you don't have a good sense of humor, but you do have a good sense of humor. I said, I'm not funny, but I think I am. And my wife said, there's a big difference. Yes, yes, yes. So um, I, if I, I'll give you one that we haven't talked about, which will be you know more refreshing uh, than just repeating one that I've already talked about, which would be um, competition is coexistence. And that was a, and I talked about Mariana Rivera in terms of this, the great, the great pitcher for the New York Yankees, but whom you have a picture of in your office, yes, a painting, a painting, a painting. But Brian Kurtz is a Mets fan, right? And those of you who don't know what we're talking about, you know, there are two teams in New York, baseball teams, there's the New York Yankees and the New York Mets, and never the fan, ne- never the twain shall meet if you're a fan of one or the other. So you have to be yeah. one or the Mets other. Mets fans hate, will hate. cheer for the Red Sox because the not Yankees. because they like the, the Red Sox, because they hate the Yankees. They're going to root for the Yankees yes. to lose. But I'm a Mets fan, and Mariano Rivera, who was a Yankee, is my favorite baseball player of all time mm-hmm. because he enveloped the concept of competition as coexistence in terms of you know again it's it, it's tied to Jay Abraham if you've if you've done it you have an obligation to teach it but you know Mariano Rivera was the best one of the best. He was the best closer of all time, the guy who closed out games by far, far and away, the best of all time. But he's also one of the best pitchers of all time. And the the fascinating thing is he had one pitch. One pitch. And he would show people how he did it. Exactly. And that's competition is coexistence. You know, I learned that at a very early in my career. He thought that was better for the game of baseball. And for him too, because if he found somebody that he taught it to who did it better than him, then he'd have to get better. I mean, people, businesses and entrepreneurs think they have the deep, dark secret that they're not going to share with everybody and anybody. And they think that everything they have is proprietary and their invention. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest mistake you can make in business. Are there things that are proprietary that you shouldn't share? Sure. But it's not everything. And I think by sharing, it's always like share, share, that's fair. But it's more than just being fair. It's actually all boats rise when you look at, your, your competitors as your friends, as people you can learn from, people you can teach. They can, they can learn from you and teach you, and all boats rise. Great advice. Well, what's one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the 
ideas from your book to get them thinking in the right direction? I would say that they should basically, you know, if they have a, um, if they have a small list and they have some kind of spreadsheet on what, you know, do I would, I would do like a, a hands-on RFM analysis of, you know, when people are buying, how much are they bought and how much they spent with you. And if you need, you need to do some, you know, data research, it's going to be worth your while. Yes. Um, Just get started. Yeah. Get started in basically segmenting, like basically segmenting your customers wherever they are. Maybe you don't have a list on a, on a computer, but you probably have Facebook people or you have something, you know, getting everything you can out of all you got. I would say, you know, take a look at your, the people that you control. And I don't say control like as a dictator, but control in terms of you have them under your spell, under your wing. They're aware of you and start figuring out who's there. Who are they? I mean, that's a great first place to start. Yes, uh, that is, that is. Well, listen, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? You've mentioned a few on this uh, interview, which we're going to include links to, but what, what, what are the, the seminal books for you? Um, Breakthrough Advertising, for sure, mm-hmm. um, by Gene Schwartz. Basically, the it's really the ultimate classic book on copywriting, marketing, and human behavior. And then in, in Over Deliver, I have nine pages of further reading. And so Dan Kennedy saw that list and he said, it's way too many books to recommend. I said, (laughs) and I said to Dan, no, it's not because this is my 40 years of, of marketing. I mean, I have books in there like, uh, you know, Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss, because that was an important book for me to read as an adult, um, to, you know, I, and, and, and they're by category, by the way, I have, you know, Direct marketing online and offline. I have copywriting and creative books. And some of those that are my favorites are, you know, Triggers by Joe Sugarman and Mark Ford's Great Leads. And then I have another one on business growth. That would be Getting Everything You Can Out of All You've Got by Jay Abraham. This episode's going to have a long list of links. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And And then direct mail books, because there's a lot we can learn from direct mail. And, and it's two of my favorites, which are free on the overdeliverbook.com site as PDFs and they're out of print. One is Dick Benson's Secrets of Successful Direct Mail and Gordon Grossman's Confessions of a Direct Mail Guy. You can't get them anymore, um, but they are available in full PDF at overdeliverbook.com because they're so important to me and that's the way I keep them in print. Yeah, now let me ask you something. Breakthrough advertising, I've seen it for sale for $125 up to, I'm looking at $360 here. Yeah, so BreakthroughAdvertising.com is my site. That's the only place to buy it. Anybody else is selling it. If they're selling a PDF, it's illegal. They're, they're violating my copyright. Right. And if they're selling a book, they're selling a used copy. Okay, okay. That's why the one I'm looking at here is 360 yeah, yeah, and actually, they're, they're, you can find them on eBay and, and Amazon often for over five hundred dollars. Okay. So one hundred twenty-five dollars at breakthroughadvertising.com. It's the original nineteen sixty-six manuscript with added swipe files from Gene himself. With um, and you worked with his widow. Yes, his widow is my partner on keeping the book alive. 
Interesting. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books you recommend or are looking forward to reading? A book that from a friend of mine, which I read recently, or you know, when it came out, is What's In It For Them by my buddy Joe Polish. And that's a wonderful book about his philosophy. It overlaps a lot with mine. Not, and that's not why it's good. It's because he has his own... I mean, I, I so often call myself the poor man's Joe Polish. I know. You, he endorsed your book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a good friend of over 20 years. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that Brian has mentioned, his website, a couple of the different websites, his LinkedIn profile, an over-deliver book that, that he's mentioned. And now a word to you, dear listener, please reach out to Brian and congratulate him on Overdeliver. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Guests on the show love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. If nothing else, share this interview on LinkedIn and tag us so we can thank you. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote. From the foreword written by Jay Abraham that we've mentioned, he wrote, I'm proud, thrilled, and thoroughly impressed at the outsized contribution Brian will make to your marketing mastery and business success in these pages. I feel privileged to have been able to write this forward, and I'm excited for the impact this book is about to have on your marketing and business life. I could say much more, but you get that I love this book and the way it's written and presented. But even beyond that, I love the enormity of usable maxims it constantly and beautifully provides. I hope these words encourage you to read Over Deliver carefully and often. The book is Over Deliver, Build a Business for a Lifetime, Playing the Long Game in Direct Response Marketing. The author is Brian Kurtz. Brian, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure, Doug. This is an awesome podcast, and you're an awesome interviewer. Safe at home! <laughs> and that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.